Hey everyone and welcome to this special sponsored interview from Ossert's 2013 conference on the Gold Coast. I'm Patrick Gray. In this sponsor interview, we're chatting with Declan Ingram of Datacom TSS. Now, Datacom TSS is a Canberra-based but national information security firm founded by ex-Australian government security specialists. Now, these guys specialise in dealing with highly skilled adversaries. Uh, So when they founded this business a few years ago, there was awareness in government uh, and in some corporates that highly skilled adversaries were a real challenge and something that they needed to worry about. But it's really been in 2013 where executives at uh, boardroom level have sat up and taken note of information security issues, particularly the issue of APT or Advanced Persistent Threat. Now, they've realised that it isn't just the Googles of the world who are being attacked by state-sponsored adversaries. Uh, Oil companies, broadcasters and insurance companies uh, were absolutely nailed by teams working for the governments of North Korea and Iran, for example. In in those cases, they were disruptive attacks, not information exfiltration attacks. Uh, But furthermore, Mandiant's, in the case of exfiltration, Mandiant's APT1 report uh, a few months ago really put the issue on the map for a lot of people who previously just weren't aware of the issues. It's that whole chicken versus egg thing too, you know, are people becoming aware of it uh, because of the media attention or is the media reporting on it more because people are becoming aware? Uh, We could talk about that all day, but instead we're going to talk about how this moving spotlight, this moving media spotlight uh, and these reports like Vandian's APT1 report have actually affected things for a business like Datacom TSS that plays in this space. Declan Ingram joined me to discuss, and I started off by asking him how perceptions of sophisticated threats have changed over the last couple of years. I think at first people were very cynical. APT as a brand and as a, as a sort of a word was being bandied around and no one really knew what it meant. And I think that even now a lot of people sort of still argue about the definitions, but when you see uh, things like the Mandiant report come out uh, about APT1, etc., people really started to see that it is actually quite serious business and that, that people are targeted. And so I think that the overall awareness now, I think, is is quite significant. There we go. APT is serious business. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, it is, it is really that case, isn't it? Because I suppose here in Australia, you know, we've got the Defence Signals Directorate, which kind of hammers home to federal government departments that um, they need to be mindful of this sort of stuff and they release the information security manual and kind of hit everyone with a stick when they don't comply. Whereas in the private sector, there's been this sort of, eh, you know, not so much worried about that, uh, but uh, it, it is changing. I think um, I think the Mandiant Report, as far as I could tell, uh, really did give things a bit of a kick along the road. I mean, how much... Um, you know, how much of this awareness can you attribute to, to just that one report? Because it seems to me that that was a real watershed moment. Yeah, look, it really, really is. But interestingly enough, the, the people that I speak to about the Mandiant Report are generally the people who already um, had an understanding of it and were kind of looking... They were the, the IT security geeks who knew that it was a problem and they were looking at something for, for something they could, they could thrash around and bash people with and say, see, if this exists, this is not just me wanting more budget. This is not just me trying to justify the latest who did he widget that's going to help um, our security. Mm, so it was something they could throw on the boardroom table and go read this. Yes. Yeah. yeah. I guess one thing that I found interesting is, um, I suppose to a degree, I mean, there's companies that do 
I suppose the threats to companies um, here, you know, you've got like a lot of mining activity in Australia and, um, you know, there's intelligence that people want to get their hands on, like information about negotiations, exploration stuff, you know. Uh, and then there's the IP stuff. Again, in mining, like I think I was chatting to some guys in South Africa where they've got some really interesting deep mine technology that they want to keep um, pretty closely guarded because it's, um, you know, it's very clever stuff. Uh, but do you think there's a, to a degree... You know, there's been a little bit of like, who cares, even if these guys get into the networks and there's nothing we can do to keep them out anyway. I mean, is that, has that been a bit of a prevailing attitude? Yes, it has. You know, it, it's, it's been quite interesting because, you know, back in the day when the whole information security thing was first starting to get pressed, the, the overwhelming thing that occurred when you spoke to people in private organisations was, oh, we've got, you know, we don't have really anything of value and we do what we can, but there isn't much more that we can do. It's not like we're a bank or defence or something like that. Mm. And what we're starting to see now is we're starting to see people become, you know, APT for fatigued. So APT people, fatigue. APT, <laughs> yes. <laughs> so they look at something like the Mandiant Report or all of the other things that are coming out sort of backing it up and they're saying, well, this is too hard and if what we're doing now isn't right, then what more can we do? Mm. And so it's, it's interesting that we've started to see people sort of using those old lines from 10 years ago, to which, which I really thought that we had moved beyond. Well, another thing that I think is often missed when we talk about this stuff is that Western countries have traditionally relied on their intellectual property rights as protections from, you know, so I mean, sure, you can come in and, you know, uh, steal our code or steal our, you know, wind turbine design or whatever, but we have patents on that stuff. So, you know, we can take you to court. Whereas, you know, typically, I mean, when, when we think of APT, you know, China is really the number one country that we think of. And China doesn't really have a record of, of protecting or, or respecting intellectual property rights. So do you think that's one thing that where there's needed to be a bit of a mind shift, which is, hey, your patents and your IP protections and your copyright uh, on in the case of code, it's not actually going to protect you? Yes, absolutely. And, you know, the organisations that we get calls from now and the guys that we're going and helping, it's it's things like they have been working on a prototype and then suddenly uh, a factory somewhere in the world starts producing their prototype before they've even finished it. So this has happened in Australia? Um, yes. <laughs> I'm not asking you for the company name, but this is, this is the sort of thing that has actually happened already here. Because people, of course, I mean, I, I had a journalist recently from the ABC contact me and ask me for, you know, an example of an Australian victim of APT. Because I guess to a lot of mainstream, uh, you know, media, they're quite cynical because they think, oh, well, you know, obviously a lot of this is just security companies trying to drum up business. And the funny thing is, when they asked me to provide an example, I couldn't actually think of one because everybody keeps this so stum, you know? Yeah. Well, look, it's a difficult problem, you know, and, and you can't go out and say, hey... Hey, shareholders, guess what happened to us? Exactly, exactly. There's no mandatory disclosure. So you really are relying on very public problems. And this is why it's so much easier for me to have conversations with my clients around anonymous and lolsec and things like that. And you can sort of talk about those attacks and you can dissect them um, and work through them. But when, you know, you're starting to talk about economic espionage and all of that sort of stuff with, when, you know, people stealing information about things and, and doing stuff with them, you just, you don't hear about it. You don't know about it. It's very, very difficult to actually to talk about that problem, which is why, you know, you really have to just use things in the media 
uh, accept that it does occur and that it's not just a massive beat up and then go back to first principles about solving the problems. Now, the other thing I wanted to have a chat to you about is um, one thing that I think has really raised alarms, alarm bells in, uh, set off alarm bells in some more forward thinking organisations. And, you know, I've been, um, I've been talking about this one for a while since it happened last year, but the attack on Saudi Aramco and then the subsequent attacks on South Korean organisations like those broadcasters and insurance companies. These are these what I call the, uh, you know, the scorched earth sort of attacks where someone gets in, once they get a foothold in the network, they just hose all of the workstations as like an economic spoiler attack. If I was a CSO, I would be quite sort of alarmed by that. Even if I was a CEO, I would be quite alarmed by the idea that someone could actually break into my network and mess with it to the point where I had to stand down my workforce for two days. Is, are people aware of those risks now or is that still one that the market is yet to sort of catch up on? There are organisations which are acutely aware of that and certainly things, um, hosting companies that have had mass attacks and have caused huge sorts of problems with that. These, these things are more, you know, when you do have an organisation that does get hosed. It, it, it is it is in the media and and so it's not a hidden sort of a thing. So it, it, it's a lot easier to have that conversation with people. Because previously you had this uh, situation where you'd have your business continuity plan, you'd have your disaster recovery plan, but, you know, the scenario for, you know, someone hacking into your network and wiping, you know, three quarters of your workstations, it wasn't really, you know, something you'd planned for, was it? <laughs> no. But you know what? Organisations are a lot better at BCPDR than they are around stopping it from happening in the first place (laughs) (laughs) well yes but then they are around sort of information security response the the, i think conceptually the idea of not having a computer is a lot easier than the idea of having a computer that someone else on the other side of the world is is stuffing around with yeah it's a bit of a simpler concept to wrap your head around isn't it yeah yeah Mm. and have you noticed that people are sort of um starting to look at resiliency a little bit more in the wake of those attacks or or they haven't really caught up yet um people are uh, and people are starting to think more back down to the the actual information that they've got and looking at things in terms of information systems. So, and this is something which has come about also by the big driver around cloud. And so as a part of that, organisations are taking a step back and they're saying, okay, so how does this affect in terms of BCPDR? How does this affect the sort of information that we've got? If we're relying on something which is hosted somewhere that we're not 100% sure and could move around at any time, what are our risks associated with particular links going down and all sorts of stuff like that? And so there's been a, you know, a few changes in the way that people do business and the way that people use IT, which has um, sort of brought up those questions in a broader sense. Well, I think um, that's one thing, you know, it's an unexpected sort of positive side effect of the cloud trend is that it's actually forced companies to think about where their data is, which you'd think would be elementary, but it's kind of not something people thought about before, is it? Yeah, it's something that, that, that people took for granted. My data is on my network. It's there somewhere. Yeah. Know, whereas now they have to sort of really think, don't they? They have to think about how it's stored and where it goes and, you know. Yeah, yeah. And, and especially organisations that are trying to move sort of up the maturity model in terms of how they capture and manage that information. They are absolutely forced to have those hard questions around what it is that's important to them, how long can they go without it? Where does it live? Who who owns it? Who's responsible for it? And how do mm. they protect it? Exactly. And when you're having, you know, when, when you're talking to an executive who's been thinking about those things, the whole security conversation gets a bit easier, doesn't it? Yes. Yeah. All right, Declan, that's all we're going to have time for. Thank you very much for uh, joining us on this special sponsor podcast from Ossert's 2013 conference. Wonderful. Thank you very much. 